Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. Macworld, February 1987. Verbatim, an interview with Andy Hertzfeld, conducted by Jerry Burrell. Macworld included a photo of Andy in this interview, and geeks will appreciate that he appears to be wearing a wizardry shirt. As software wizard on the Macintosh team at Apple, Andy Hertzfeld wrote about a third of the Mac's system software, including the user interface toolbox. He also designed software for the Thunderscan digitizer and wrote Switcher, the utility that allows users to go directly from one application to another, bypassing the finder. Hertzfeld first encountered computers during his high school years in a Philadelphia suburb, and he continued computing while studying at Brown University. But it wasn't until working on a degree in computer science at the University of California that he turned to professional programming. I bought my first Apple in 1978, and I immediately lost interest in grad school and started doing products for the Apple II, he says. In the summer of 1979, he signed on at Apple for a tour of duty that lasted until 1984. In 1980, he produced the firmware for the first 80-column card for the Apple II, an advance he likens to his latest achievement, the software for the Radius full-page display, because of the boost in credibility and business utility it gave to the machine. We're doing the interview thing again. So this will be the voice of Jerry Burrell asking questions of Andy Hertzfeld, who will sound like this. How do you like working with Radius? Actually, I'm not an employee of Radius. I'm a friend of the company, a stockholder, and a co-developer of their first product. But there isn't enough software work there to keep me busy full-time, and I need the freedom to continue working on my own projects. I've really enjoyed it so far. It's very exciting to see a new company spring up. Microcomputers are a precarious business. It's tough to start a new company, but at the same time, it's a blast. I wrote all the software for the Radius full-page display. Actually, it's firmware that's incorporated into 32K of ROM. Originally, I didn't think a large screen would need very much software. I thought I could write what was needed in an afternoon. Over time, Burl and I came up with a lot of neat things that we could do for a large display and it took a great deal more time to implement than I originally intended. The single thing I like best in my work is when a person first sees what I've done and says, Wow! The Radius FPD is that kind of product. It has a big wow factor. I really enjoy that. Will Radius become another PC peripheral vendor like AST or Quadram? I hope not. What's exciting about Radius isn't the opportunity to build niche products to satisfy a market need and make some bucks. Doing what other companies can't do because they lack the technical skill or imagination, that's what we do at Radius. We want to be pioneers. All of the folks involved with Radius sort of grew up at Apple, so naturally, we want to be like Apple. Not in the sense of being a large company, but in the sense of creativity and innovation. Who else at Radius is from Apple? Well, there's Burl Smith, who designed the digital hardware of the Macintosh and the LaserWriter who is also my next-door neighbor and good friend. The president of the company is Mike Boich, one of the original Macintosh marketing people and Apple's first software evangelist. He's also the co-author of Mac Terminal. Matt Carter is the vice president of manufacturing. He was the architect of the Macintosh factory before he left Apple in mid-1983. Finally, Elaine Rossman, who was a key Mac software evangelist, heads up sales and marketing. What's next at Radius? 
They'd kill me if I talked about it. There's this myth in the industry that you have to keep everything about your new products secret. In fact, there's really a double standard. You have to tell investors and third-party developers about your plans, so everything always leaks out anyway. I mean, that's part of what Radius is all about. We want to do the things that other companies can't do, so what's the difference if people find out about it? However, I have to respect the judgment of others, so it's not my place to talk about Radius's future products. I can say anything I want to about my own work. I guess I can say that Radius wants to take advantage of new technology as it becomes available and affordable, both from Apple and the chip companies. We also want to address the current limitations of the Macintosh. Andy is likely referring to the 68020 accelerator that would arrive shortly. What are your impressions of the work going on at Next? Well, I just had dinner with Steve Jobs and a bunch of Next guys last night. They haven't shown me the computer yet, but I have a pretty good idea of what they're up to. Part of me really wants to work for Next. They have some smart people there, and Steve knows how to get everyone excited about what they're doing. It's going to be tough, but I think they can make it. I'm sure their computer will be great. It would be a sad world if a new computer company didn't have a chance to succeed. How can any computer company make a unique product? The next products will have 68020s, and the ones after that will have 68030s. Most of the decision-making is done by the chip manufacturers. How can a small company compete? To a degree, I think that's true. But the name of the game is software. Motorola and the other major chip manufacturers get to make most of the fundamental decisions. But how the chips are put together can give a company a performance advantage of only three times or so. However, if you come up with a great new algorithm, software can give a performance edge of a hundred times or more. Also, software can make the computer much more accessible to potential users and can break through to new areas of functionality where there isn't any competition yet. That's why a small company has a chance. You need really good chemistry in a design group to ensure a good software product. I'm not very impressed with what's currently available. Next's computer will compete with Sun's and Apollo's. Look at the window manager on the Sun or other Unix systems. It's really pretty bad. It presents Next with an opportunity to do much better. Why won't you move to Next? It's very important to me that my work reach the largest audience. Even if Next is very successful, they won't sell as many computers in a year as Apple sells in a single month. I also like to be in control of my work. Steve sometimes jerks you around a lot, but I would get a kick out of working with a group again, so who knows? What excites you the most? I'd have to say it's the opportunity to reach lots of people with my products. To get me to work for a company, the project would have to be very special, far beyond the scope of what I could accomplish on my own. Why should I work for a company on something like a single application when I could do the same thing on my own? I'm constantly reevaluating what I should work on. Does it have a lot of utility? Will it reach enough people? Does the Open Mac excite you? Referring to the Macintosh 2, which was not yet shipping at this time. Yeah, but I'm not working on it yet. I'm afraid it's going to be a little too expensive for me to get very excited about it. Part of me is still a 14-year-old kid who wants a great computer but can't afford very much. I want to work on products that kids have a chance to use. I have to start choosing my projects a little more carefully. I made a mistake with Servant, a souped-up Finder replacement, because it competes with what Apple has to do for itself.
But there is very little time in life. You have to choose a path and walk down it, hoping that you've made the right choice. Sometimes, like with the Mac, you just know that you're working on the right stuff. Other times, it's not so clear. What do you think about John Scully's work at Apple? Apple is doing very well right now, so I'd have to say he's doing a pretty good job. My emotions about Apple are quite complicated. Sometimes it frustrates me because it's so large that it has trouble making decisions. Scully himself is very bright and focused, but he's conservative in comparison to Steve. Scully is a classic corporate type, while Steve is the opposite of how you learn to be in business school. If I had to make a choice, I'd always take jobs over Scully since I'm a romantic at heart. But they didn't ask me. From most people's perspective, Apple is probably better off with Scully. How is Jean-Louis Gasset doing with product development? I don't really keep up with everything that's going on at Apple, so it's hard for me to say. I do know that they're doing the obvious, common-sense kind of things, putting one foot ahead of the other and getting things done. But Gasset can sometimes be a little too much for me. Sometimes he's a little too interested in being liked for what he's doing and not in making the difficult decisions. There's some debate over the future of PostScript at Apple. What do you think? PostScript is an excellent page description standard. There's little reason for Apple to switch from PostScript, and I don't think it will. All of the performance problems that people complain about can and will be solved. I was initially a little biased against PostScript, mainly because I wasn't consulted when they made the choice. But it's well thought out, and I've come to respect it very much. I do have some mixed feelings. I'm basically a screen guy. The developers of PostScript are focused on printing, which is different from screen graphics because the pages last forever. On a screen, everything is repainted every 16 milliseconds. When you have to go to paper, a lot more care is required to get everything right. There's also a sort of impedance mismatch with QuickDraw that still needs to be smoothed out. For example, regions still don't work with the laser writer. Do you think QuickDraw will be able to evolve into a standard for graphics in the Apple community, much as the virtual device interface and others are doing in the IBM world? QuickDraw already is the standard for graphics in the Apple community, and it's a much stronger standard than anything in the IBM world. QuickDraw must continue to evolve and become more sophisticated as computers become more powerful. But that's true of every piece of software. The most interesting problem is that QuickDraw is still resolution-dependent. It's interesting because resolution independence slows things down considerably, and a screen package is worthless if it's not fast enough. My best guess is that future Apple systems will provide QuickDraw and PostScript for both screens and printers. Developers will choose what's most appropriate for them. What are your perceptions about the tensions between Apple and Microsoft as a result of Microsoft's work with Windows for the IBM machines? What was the current version of Windows when this interview was conducted in late 1986? 1.0. If I were Microsoft, I'd probably be doing the same thing. Of course there's some tension. There always has been, and probably always will be. They're different companies with different needs and goals. So far, they've always been able to work out a mutually beneficial compromise. What about questions relating to software's look and feel in light of the recent federal court decision that the look and feel of software is protected by copyright? Windows 1.0 doesn't really have the look and feel of the Mac. It was influenced by it, but it's certainly not a copy. The decision you mentioned was about nearly identical products. 
A major court victory this week for software publishers. A federal judge has ruled in favor of Broderbund in a suit against Unison World. Broderbund sued Unison World, claiming its printmaster software was a copyright violation of Broderbund's print shop. The court ruled that a software copyright is infringed if the look, sequence, and structure of existing software is copied. This is the first time that copyright protection has been extended to the audio-visual user interface of non-game software. I'm against copyright as a legal protection for ideas in most cases. I think that code has to be protected, but ideas should not be. The industry achieves progress through competitors refining each other's ideas, and that process should not be stifled. I didn't like Apple threatening to sue digital research over GEM, even though GEM was pretty much a direct knockoff. Stealing ideas and concepts is okay, as long as you put some new ones of your own back into the pool. Just copying a competitor's product isn't very righteous. I think Windows 1.0 is a much more righteous product than GEM. So your code in the Radius machine should be protected? Yes, I think all code should be protected, but not the ideas that went into the code. It's okay for competitors to copy the Radius 2 screen idea as long as they don't copy my implementation. There are a million different ways to achieve the same end result with a completely different implementation. I think that companies and their users are much better off with money being spent on research and development instead of on legal fees. Does it upset you to see IBM machines running Windows or GEM? Seeing IBM computers still running WordStar is what upsets me. Seeing Windows, a mouse, and better software on an IBM is fine. I feel better for the users, and it makes me feel like we've accomplished that much more. What's next for graphics on the Mac? Well, there's a spectrum of things. The Mac has just one bit per pixel, and obviously that's going to change as memory becomes cheaper and processors get more powerful. 8 bits per pixel, or even 16 bits, is going to happen fairly soon for grayscale as well as color. That'll really improve the user interface. Screens will look exquisite. You can do incredible things with that much pixel depth. What about graphics coprocessors, such as those in other computers? Many people asked us about that in the original Mac. I think that flexibility is the most important thing. The Macintosh turned out as well as it did because we weren't forced to freeze our ideas in silicon. Bill Atkinson kept improving things constantly as QuickDraw evolved over a period of years. If we had committed to a custom graphics chip, he probably wouldn't have invented regions. We're continually learning how to make things better. If you know how things are going to change, you have to keep very flexible. It is true that as we move to more bits per pixel, we'll need some kind of hardware assist that much more. But don't forget that the main processors are getting much faster too. Of the currently available graphics coprocessors, I think the Texas Instruments 34010 is the best. Burl was interested in it in 1983 when it was called the IGC. It's completely programmable and extremely flexible. The Intel chip is much more hardwired and limiting. I think Andy is referring to the Intel 82786 here. What about the future of large screens? Well, I wouldn't have worked on the radius if I didn't think large screens were important. We prefer the portrait mode configuration over more horizontally oriented screens because of the way most users work. The reason that other companies have chosen a horizontal orientation has to do with the hardware. Everyone is using the same NEC video RAM that naturally supports 1024 pixels per scan line. 
Burl and I both try to think of the user's point of view as opposed to technological efficiency. You want your large screen to complement the Macintosh, not overwhelm it. One of the best things about a Mac is its small size, how it fits easily on a desk. You don't want your screen to be twice the size of the Mac itself. We believe that most Mac users want to be able to see the entire page they're working on with some room to keep tools and desk accessories. The Radius display achieves that without overwhelming the Mac. We optimized for the highest possible video quality as opposed to the number of dots. On the other hand, CAD CAM and some other applications, such as huge spreadsheets, require a very wide screen, so you'd be better off with a competitor's product. We believe that the majority of Mac users are involved in document preparation, and the Radius display is great for that. How do you look back on your time developing the Macintosh? It was the best time I've ever had. I was sure that I was spending my time doing something very worthwhile. That's the best feeling there is. I also got to work with some incredibly great people. In fact, I get too much credit these days for the Mac software. Bill Atkinson is much more responsible than I am for the ideas that went into the Macintosh. He is the best programmer I've ever met, and I was very lucky to work with him. There were three others who did crucial work. Larry Kenyon was responsible for the I.O. system and eventually the memory manager and file system. Bruce Horn designed the resource manager and the finder and was responsible for lots of the ideas that went into the system. And Steve Capps came on in 1983 to help Bruce with the Finder, as well as to write text edit and plug in wherever needed. Steve is a great guy, and we couldn't have done it without him. It's unfortunate that the media singles out a few people and ignores everyone else, but I guess that's the way things have to work. So many people did important work on the Mac, it really was a team effort. I know that Macworld ran an article on the whole team in its first issue, but that was very unusual. Some rarely mentioned people, like Larry Kenyon, Jerome Coonan, the software manager and sane author, and Don Denman, who wrote Mac Basic, put so much into it. Mac Basic didn't even see the light of day. What happened to it? It's a long story, that's on folklore.org, but it was eventually flushed down the toilet. Don didn't finish it on time, but it was politics more than anything else that killed it. Microsoft started with a basic interpreter, and a lot of corporate pride is tied up in that area. They convinced Apple that more than one basic would confuse things, and that Microsoft's was good enough, even though Don's was considerably better. Do you have any classic examples of gaffes in development? Oh, sure. For a while, we had someone working on the memory manager and file system who is in way over her head. She wasn't a very good programmer and managed to screw things up pretty badly before we realized what was happening. And of course, we all had our share of embarrassing bugs, but overall I think we did pretty well. See mea culpa at folklore.org. Are there any products for the Mac that you don't like? Of course there are, but I don't think I want to name any. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. In hardware, things are really dull. Currently, three or four categories cover all of the hardware products for the Mac, which is a shame since so much more is possible. I tend to gravitate toward developing peripheral hardware. I did a lot of peripheral cards for the Apple II in the early days, including the first 80-column card. I really enjoyed working on Thunderscan, which has a very high wow factor. But I'm pretty bored with companies that only make hard disks or memory upgrades. That doesn't take much imagination. 
In terms of software, there are a lot of really funky databases out there. One of the word processors that recently came out is a disgrace. But I should also say that there are many great programs coming out too. One of the best I've seen recently is a virtual instrument system called LabVIEW. The program we covered in our September issue? Yes, it really captures the spirit of the Macintosh and is a breakthrough product in its field. I wish that I had written it. Another really good product is Right Now, the word processor that's marketed by TeaMaker. While it's not a breakthrough like LabVIEW, it's an excellent consolidation-type product. It brings word processing on the Mac to a new level. What will you do when you grow up? Andy was about 34 years old at the time of this interview. I hope I never have to grow up. Eventually, I'd like to become a fiction writer. I think I'll program through my 30s and then become a novelist. As long as I'm excited about what I'm doing, I'll keep on programming. I love programming. I'm very lucky to get paid to do what I enjoy the most, but I'm afraid that I won't be able to do the kind of work I do now in 10 years or so. Systems programming requires intense concentration and an incredible amount of energy, which I'm not sure I'll still have 10 years from now. Is there any new technology that interests you? Well, there is Pixar, the graphics company up in Marin County. Their stuff is pretty awesome, and I'd like to learn what makes it tick. There's also the Connection Machine, which is being built by Thinking Machines in Cambridge. They're the first people to really shatter the von Neumann bottleneck. Their machine is what all computers will be like 30 years from now. What's going on with Servant? Well, we're having this conversation in October, 1986. Hopefully I'll be almost finished with Servant by the time this is published. I'm currently working on it every day, trying to get a stable release that I can upload to CompuServe for testing. It's now up to almost 48k of tight assembly code. It's become the largest and most complicated program I've ever written. Servant has four major parts. The first and most important is the second-generation finder aspect. Macintosh users are lucky that competition forces constant improvements in application software like spreadsheets and databases. But the Finder has no real competition. Since it's a very important program, it deserves to evolve too. The second part is the overlapping window switcher functionality. It improves on switcher by keeping all the windows visible on the screen, a more intuitive approach that will become increasingly important as screens get larger, much like MultiFinder and System 7 did a few years later. The third part is resource moving and editing. The Macintosh has become fairly complex. Most users don't understand ResEdit and need the help of an expert to configure their system file. I want to turn all users into experts by making Servant the resource editor for the rest of us, leveraging the finder metaphor that everyone is already comfortable with. The fourth and final part of Servant is its scripting capability, which I haven't really started to work on yet. One of the major weaknesses of the Macintosh is that users can't write scripts for repetitive commands like they can on Unix machines. The Finder is sort of Grand Central Station for applications, so it is the appropriate place for a scripting mechanism. I can use the Finder metaphor to create a really neat icon-based scripting language that will hopefully be easy to understand and fun to use. Like Tempo? Well, it covers the same area of functionality as Tempo, but the approach I'm taking is completely different. Tempo isn't very robust since it depends on the physical mouse click level instead of the semantic level. I've invented a mechanism I call puppet strings that allows Servant to make semantic requests like quit, 
or open this file to applications. The scripting is probably the most difficult part of Servant. I must supply puppet string resources for all of the most popular applications in order for the program to catch on with users. I'm not sure I can pull it off, but it's worth trying. Andy Hertzfeld speaking at the Mac OS X conference 2004. Sort of the most significant thing I did with Burl after the Macintosh was start a company called Radius. I don't know if people remember it, but we made the first big displays for the Mac. We did a 68020 based accelerator. Well, some. Yeah, so, well, that's amazing. <laughs> Some companies are started in garages or even in, in bedrooms. Uh, Radius was started on a ping pong table at our house. I, I live next to Burl in, a, in two, two houses in Palo Alto on the same lot. Burl had the bigger house. I had a smaller one next to him. But in Burl's house, we had a ping pong table dominating one room where we would go play ping pong for an hour or so every day uh, until Burl got serious about starting Radius. I walked over there one day and to play ping pong, but the ping pong table was covered up. Uh, the left half of the ping pong table was covered up with newspaper. The right half of the ping pong table was covered up by a blue felt blanket. I said, Burl, what's going on? He goes, we can't play ping pong anymore. We're starting a company. And I said, well, what, what, why are thing, things covered up that way? And he pointed to the left, to the newspaper ha covered half of the ping pong table. He goes, that's engineering. And the blue felt blanket, that's marketing. <laughs> so uh, Radius was started on a ping pong table. Burl was far and away the driving force of Radius. I just kind of followed him along uh, just to help him. He was on the phone with suppliers to get parts for our prototype. The very first prototype of the big display we called Big Bertha because uh, it seemed so gigantic. And there's a good story about how when we first got the prototype, Burl already had the digital electronics design. And of course, Burl thinks his design is perfect. It'll just plug it in and work. Uh, he was very, very frustrated when we plugged in the display and it didn't work. And for hours and hours he was fiddling with it, uh, going over every bit of his design. Sure, it was right. It turned out it didn't work uh, because it had a multi-voltage power supply and it was set for the European voltages uh, when it was shipped. So all he had to do was flip the switch. It did work the first time. Uh, but. Um, <clears throat> you know, Burl would get on the phone with suppliers, and if he was talking to an executive at the other company, he would say things like, hey, I need that part really fast, my board of directors is on my case. But if he was talking to a secretary, he'd go, oh, my boss is, you know, is torturing me. He'd really, uh, I think having taken lessons from Steve Jobs, he, he was able to uh, practice his own kind of reality distortion. Um, and... Um, I thought the coolest thing about it that I got to do anyway was the two-screen software. We were able to uh, see a lot of jaws drop the very first time we demonstrated uh, when you hooked up a radius display to the Mac, the Mac screen would still be there and you can actually drag things from the big screen to the, to, to the small screen, which was very impressive at its time. Well, that came about uh, because of Burl's desire never to waste an electronic component. Burl was just a genius level digital designer and in those days, MSI chips, you know, the uh, the gates that you built your hardware functionality uh, out of came like four NAND gates uh, to a chip. So the design maybe required three NAND gates, uh, and most designers would not use the fourth NAND gate, but Burl would always think of some use for it. So when we, we initially wanted to put a big display on the Mac, I just thought, well, just let the little screen be blank. Use the big screen. Uh, but Burl could, it was just so revolting to Burl's design aesthetic to let this little monitor go to waste. He just kept beating them. We got to use it. We got to use it. And I came up with like harebrained schemes 
schemes like, oh, maybe I could set up a little environment for just running desk accessories on the small screen. Till finally, uh, when we were coming back from dinner one night and he just says, no, that's not good enough, that's not good enough, I hit on the trick, uh, which is to put both screens in a single coordinate space, which we take for granted today. It was done by Ernie Biernick in 1987 for the Mac II. And I actually, Burl didn't want me to help them do it, but I correctly, I think, judged that if I could get Apple to do it in a similar way than I did, uh, we'd stay compatible with them. And it was right to, to be able to help them help them do that. But anyway, that, that was just a fun trick. Thanks for tuning in. You can find more stories or join the very quiet Discord server for this podcast at www.macfolkloreradio.com.